You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Do me a favor this morning. If you'll take out your program uh, and the pen out of the seat back in front of you, we're going to be a little bit more interactive today than some other days. And what I want you to do is take that out because there's some essential things that I think God wants to do in your heart, in and through you here today. And we're just super glad you're here. I mean, what great comfort, right? Listen, listen to the words of the song we just sang. I no longer am a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I want you to think for a minute, what are you afraid of? When you think of our nation, what are you afraid of right now? When you think of our world, what are you afraid of? When you think of your kids and their world and what they're going to inherit, what are you afraid of? When you think of the current events going on in our culture and our society, what are you afraid of? How freeing it would be to no longer be a slave to fear. That's freedom, right? I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not a slave to that. I'm not bound by it. I'm not controlled by my fears. But instead, I am a child of God. Even in times where the church has been persecuted in, across the world as it is now and in history... We find that people have to stand up in the face of their fears and say, I'm not going to be bound by it. I'm not going to be enslaved by my fear, but I am a child of God. And there are things going on in our culture that make us afraid and we have reason to fear. But we have to choose, are we going to be a slave to fear or will we choose trust in God? And during this whole series, God has been bringing you and me to a point where he challenges, are you going to trust in money? Are you going to trust in your own self? Are you going to trust in you or are you going to trust in me and my love and my goodness? God is asking us and that's why we have hope available through Jesus. Because without Jesus, we are slaves to fear. Without Jesus, we are bound without hope of being unbound. We are handcuffed without hopes of being unhandcuffed. We are trapped in shame and guilt and sin without any hope of getting out. But with Jesus... We have hope. And many of the fears that we have come out in our questions, don't they? We ask, why did this happen? What's going on here? What's wrong with people? What's wrong with us? And we've begun all these questions. Our country has exploded with questions in the last week. And many of them are born out of fear or out of outrage or fairness or injustice or opinion. And sometimes it's wrongly resulted in violence. And let me just say, so there's clarity for all of us, that life is sacred. It is created by God from the unborn baby in the womb to the Alzheimer's patient who doesn't know that they're there in a nursing home. Life is sacred. It is created by God. Life is spiritual. It is part of God's creation. And thus, all life matters. All of it matters. Amidst all these questions that come up, I believe that God has been challenging you and preparing you, sharpening you to trust him in these times. As I was preparing my message this week, I thought, do I need to just throw out my message and rewrite my whole message. And it was so awesome because it's just amazing that God, I believe, has brought us through the book of Malachi to land on this message today. That he's been 
preparing us, like preparing the athlete or preparing the soil of your heart and my heart to be able to receive what God wants us to hear today. You can't be that good. We can't plan stuff like that, but God in the sovereignty loves his church, and I believe he's been preparing me and my heart, you and your hearts, to hear what he would have to say today. He's been sharpening you and challenging you and preparing you. And as people are crying out for answers, we need to acknowledge that our help is from God in heaven. Not just our hope being in God, our hope, but truly our current help has got to be from God in heaven. Instead of reaching to government and policy and opinion and, and whatever else that we reach to God, we say, God, oh, we need help right now. We need the help that can only come from you because of the condition in which we live. It has to be beyond human effort. The Lord must move and love must win. And behind every battle and behind every question is the issue of trust. Do I trust God? My good friends, Byron and Annette Davis, who shared uh, about uh, how to love when godly people do ungodly things about a year and a half ago, uh, Annette uh, was sharing this week that she, uh, by the way, is one of the most highly decorated black athletes in pro beach volleyball. She's an Olympian, I mean, super decorated, and, and yet she has a son who's growing up, and that son is going to be taking driver's ed and learning how to drive. And as a mom, she said, I have fear for my son because he's a black male and he will drive. And you know what? She has reason to fear. But the question is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, will she take that fear and capture it and say, I'm not going to be a slave to fear. I'm a child of God and begin to trust God with her children. As I look around this room, I see law enforcement and first responders of every race. As I'm looking around this room, I see every race and families who represent those people who are here. And, and you, as families, have reason to fear because we want that person to come home at night, right? And we either can choose, I'm going to be a slave to fear, or I'm going to take that fear captive and I'm going to say, I am a child of God and my hope, my help has to be in the Lord. That's where it has to be because life is relentless, but God is good. We need an assurance of God's love, and we need our own disobedience to be challenged by him. And so God has asked us seven questions. Let me review them for you real quick in case you haven't been here every week, but I, I want to just review where we've been in the book of Malachi. Uh, first of all, the people ask God seven different questions, and God uses those seven different questions. He, in fact, turns them back at the people who've been asking them to help refine them. He's like, you're asking me questions? I'm going to turn that same question back to you, and it's going to refine you. Why? Because God is pursuing their hearts. He's saying, I want the real you. I want the inner you. I don't want the fake you. I don't want the outside you. I want you. And God is pursuing their hearts. And so the first question that people ask is, well, how, God, have you loved us? And God proves his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proves his love to the nation of Israel through saying, look at the other countries who've been captured. Only you have been restored back to the land I promised to you. God proved his love. Then secondly, they said, well, how have we shown contempt for your name? And they said, how have we defiled you? And we found out that the people of God were giving God leftovers with their abilities, their talents, the, the, the gifts of their hands, their acts of service. They were like afterthoughts. They were like leftovers. They were defiled animals that they were bringing to the Lord. And then we said, how have you wearied him? 
They asked, how have we wearied the Lord with our words? And God addressed our talk. So he's addressed our trust. He's addressed our talents. He's addressed our talk. He goes on to address the tithe when the people ask, how do we return and how are we robbing you? He says, bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. And then today, the question that the people will ask is this, what have we said against you? And God wants to deal today with our testimony. Trust, talents, talk, tithe, and testimony. God wants to deal with your testimony. Some of you say, well, what is a testimony? A testimony is pretty simple. A testimony is your story of how things are, how things went down, and who was involved. You go into a legal courtroom, they want to know, you know, how did things go down, who was involved, what's your story on it, and they take all these different testimonies together to try to get to the facts. And that's what they do. But you have a testimony. And the question is, as the question God has been asking his people is, what's your testimony regarding your trust in me, even in difficult circumstances? You have a story, and your story is either going to sound like this. Stuff got really hard in culture and in my life and in my circumstances, and so I began to trust me, and that's the end of the story. That's a dead-end story, by the way. Or your story's going to sound like stuff was really hard in culture and in my life. And in the midst of that, I chose to put my trust in God. And every time it got difficult again, I choose to trust God. And when I don't understand and when I need to listen more, I still choose to put my trust in God. The question is, what is your testimony? Unfortunately, in Malachi's day, the people of God had gotten sucked into the fear game. They got sucked into the comparison game too, right? They were looking outside of those who were godly and they were comparing their lot in life with the godless. And they began to think like they seem to have it better. That they get away with all sorts of injustices. That nobody's holding them accountable. And they begin to look at these things and, and so they started mistrusting God's love for them. They started mistrusting the Lord. And when they did that, then symptoms, unhealthy symptoms started showing up in their lives. They were giving God the leftover of their abilities, their work, their talk was displeasing uh, to God. They were tipping God. They weren't returning the whole tithe. They were giving him very little, and they were verbally applauding that which God hates in their culture. And God doesn't love that. God wants their hearts. These outward actions that they were doing revealed what was really happening in their hearts. And so God goes through these questions and turns them back to them to because he's pursuing your heart. He's pursuing my heart. He wants to know your heart. You're here in this room today because God's pursuing your heart. He wants to melt the parts of your heart that have grown cold. He wants to awaken your hope where you've been hopeless. God wants to assure you of his love and challenge your disobedience to lay a firm foundation for you for the days to come. He wants your heart. The one thing about God that's different than human courts, in human courts, you know, you try to identify, well, here is the motive, and here is the intent of the person there, and they try to go through all sorts of things in, in a, some sort of a trial to be able to say, this is why the person did this, and, and, and they try to get down to the facts and, and also go to the motive of the heart. The beautiful thing about God is God has the unique ability to access all your thoughts, all your motivations, and the inmost beliefs of your heart. God doesn't need the whole courtroom scene. God already knows. In fact, sometimes we don't even know why we do what we do, but God does. 
He knows the motivations, the thought of your heart. He knows why we react the way we react. God knows the reason why you believe what you believe. He knows our propensity to try and take care of self and be secure in and of ourselves. He knows our fears about a world that would push God away and how that would affect our comfort or our lifestyle. He knows all of that. The one thing that God is after, though, is your heart. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 13. God speaking, he says, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? God said, you have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So right away, they're saying things, but I want to help us lay the foundation of what life is all about. At the top of your outline, there's a statement. I want you to fill this in. Life is not about me. It's about God and his glory. Life is not about me. It's about God and his glory. Let's just level the playing field right here. When you're out in some canyon or up on some mountain and you're out in the wilderness, maybe you're at the beach, and you look up and you see all the stars in the universe, and you look at those and you say, wow, that's amazing, and you say, I am nothing. I feel so small. When you say, I feel so small, it's because you're so small. We're so small, aren't we? We stand there and we're like, wow, that God would even consider us, that there is a creator. It's not some energy of the universe. It's the energy of the creator of the universe, that he's made it all. And we, life is all about God and his glory. It's not about me and my glory. But so often we turn it back at ourselves, don't we? And so the people of God in Malachi's day were doing that. They were turning it back at God. And they said, number two in your outline is, it's futile to serve God. It's futile. Like, we're doing this in vain is almost what it feels like to them. And I want you to know that Satan whispers this suggestion to your heart. And one of two things happen. Either you're going to reject it. You'll capture that thought. You make it obedient to Christ. Say, that's a lie. And you capture that right away. Or your heart makes an agreement with it. And you go, you know what? It is futile to serve God. And if that's the case, if it feels futile to serve God, then we're going to want to serve ourselves. Well, it's not unique with the people of Malachi's day. Thousands of years before that, in the garden, with the very first people, we find the same event at work. Look with me at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So right away in the garden, we see the devil who is defeated show up and he wants to say, hey, here's God's creation. I'm corrupted. 
there is a day coming that God will judge me. I want to take as many of those and corrupt God's creation. It's really my only way to get back at him. So he shows up, and sin had not happened yet in the garden. But all of a sudden, in the garden, the question comes up. And the question comes up and says, is it futile to serve God? Adam and Eve have been serving God. They've been living, enjoying the blessings of the garden. And yet there was one tree they were instructed not to eat from. And so the serpent comes and he tempts them with what is there. Number three in your outline, when we say, what do I gain? The tongue tells on our heart and whose glory we desire to fulfill. And this speaks arrogantly against God, right? See, the question that they were asking was, what do I gain? What's in it for me? I mean, isn't that so arrogant that they would say that? Like, they'd say, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by serving God? I mean, if God is God, we should serve him without expecting a lot of gain. But we live in a culture of entitlement too, don't we? And we begin to say, well, God, I've been serving you. What's in it for me? This speaks arrogantly against God. We live in a culture of victimization, don't we? I mean, have you noticed how easy it is for us to turn everything back to be about us, right? Think about it for a minute. We turn everything in our culture to be about us. It's all about us, and we have an opinion on everything, and so we turn it to be about us. It's about me. It's about my pain or the injustices I face or the challenges that you're now experiencing, and so it all becomes about us, and Satan shows up, and he tempts Eve with this. He says, listen, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, and that's what happens. That's what the enemy does. He comes to you. So is it futile to serve God? What do you gain? Maybe God's been holding out on you. And maybe you need to begin to decide that you know what is right and wrong. You know better than God what is good for you or bad for you. And that's what happens when you and I begin to mistrust God. We begin to say, I know what's better for me than God does. I know what's right or wrong better than other people or better than God. So we try to become like God. Satan tried to become like God. He got kicked out of heaven for it. God's more gracious with us. We decide even at times to take matters into our own hands because we just don't trust God to do it. God, culture's going this way. Other things are going this way. We're going to take matters in our own hands because we just don't trust that you're going to make it right. And so the question comes up, what do I gain by doing what is right? And asking that question, what do I gain by doing what is right, leads to doing as I please. Does that make sense? If we begin to say, I mean, if you think about that, what do I gain by doing what is right is a precursor it actually leads to doing as I please. Because if we, it's not really that question, what do I gain by doing what is right? It's a setup. It's a precursor. It says if, if I am not gaining something by doing what is right, then it gives me the option to do something wrong. It's a setup. It's a precursor. So we do now as I please. The fruit in the garden, it's interesting, we'll look at the next verse in a moment, but the fruit was pleasing to the eye. So here's Eve, she's in the garden, the Satan comes and tempts her, 
and says, you may not eat of the fruit. She, he says, you will certainly not die. Go ahead and eat because you'll get knowledge. You're going to get something. You're gaining nothing by serving God. You're going to get something. And, and then, so what happens when she heard the temptation, she looked at it and she found that it was pleasing to the eye and that it was good for gaining wisdom. We say, what do I gain? And then we look to do as we please. When we say, quote, it's not fair, we reveal that we've agreed to mistrust God. And this speaks arrogantly against God. Number four in your outline, when we say it's not fair, we reveal that we've agreed to mistrust God, and this speaks arrogantly against God. When you say the question, it's not fair, the statement, it's not fair, what you're really saying is, when is it my turn? That's what you're really saying, right? Think about it. You have a kid, and they're having a birthday, and your other kid gets mad because they don't get presents because the birthday boy or girl gets presents, and they get mad, and they're like, it's not fair. They don't really mean that it's not fair. What they're really saying is, when is it my turn? Parents, listen to me. This is really good if you have this filter. When they say, it's not fair, you can say, well, fairness ended in the garden. That's a very spiritual, abstract, high thought for them. They won't understand that. But if you can say... Then, if you can say, what, look behind and say what they're really saying is, what they're really saying is, when is it my turn? When is it my turn? But let me tell you, some of us have gotten older, and we're actually just saying the same thing. Like the people in, Jesus, in Malachi's day, that they're saying, it's not fair. And what they're really saying is, when is it my turn? And they're they're saying that all the wicked people seem to prosper. I mean, if you look, it looks like all, they're looking outside the walls and they're saying, all the wicked people, it seems like they have wealth. It seems like they seem healthy. All the wicked people, they've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend. All the people and the wicked people, they seem to go through life uncontested. Nobody's suspicious of them. They retire. Maybe they have the best adventures. And you begin looking outside and you say, well, they do well at work or they do well at school even though they didn't apply themselves or they're cheating or whatever. They laugh at the idea of God. They just mock it. They do as they please. They commit violence and even get away with it. They seem very, to have very little shame or very little remorse. They seem to only care for themselves. No one's holding them accountable and they seem to do as they please, and God's not doing anything about it. And that's what the people in Malachi's day were looking outside and saying all those kind of things regarding the godless. The godly were looking outside the walls at the godless and saying they seem to have it together. They're like, when will justice happen? Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and remember, pleasing, I want to do as I please, right? Pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining something, for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. That's a very important statement here, because he's been with her the whole time. She didn't have to go looking for him. She didn't say, hey, snake, pause, let me go look for, you know, my husband. No, he's been there the whole time. He didn't defend her. He didn't counter the lies. He didn't do anything. He's standing there as a, just as guilty by association as she is, right? She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? 
Now listen, whenever God asks a question, remember, he's not asking it for himself. Just like when God asks a question, these people ask God a question, he turns it back on them. God already knows the answer. He knows where they are. He's not wondering, like, hey, I, I don't have you um, find my friends. I can't see where you are. I don't know where on your navigation how to get to you. He's, he's asking them a question because he's asking them the question for them. And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, said Adam. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, are these questions for God or questions for them? For them. And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, right? And so the blame game started from the very beginning, right? It's not me. I don't have to take responsibility. It's got to be something else outside me. The reality is I wanted to do as I pleased and I thought I could gain something from it. And the people in Malachi's day are saying, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain from doing what is right? What do we gain from serving the Lord? I want you to understand something. God's question, where are you? is an opportunity to admit that you are naked, empty, corrupted, tormented, and starved. It's time to be honest with yourself and with God and with others. See, God asked the question, where are you, to them in the garden? And he's asking, where are you? Because they've already come to the conclusion that they're naked. The truth is they're empty, they're they're starved, they're they're corrupted, and they know it all of a sudden. They're they're corrupted, and they've given in to the very first sin, and they know that in their spirit, and they become aware with it, and God is asking, where are you? And today, listen, I believe that you're here today, and God is asking you, where are you? Where are you? Where's your heart? What's going on in there? Some of you are saying, God, I'm hiding. I'm hiding from you. I I actually have hidden some things in my heart that have spoken arrogantly against you. I've made some agreements that I'm believing and I'm acting on because I haven't been trusting you for who you are. And God wants you here today because he simply loves you. He loves your heart. He's pursuing. He's wooing your heart, and he's asking, where are you? Well, this is our culture, isn't it? Our culture finds ourselves empty, corrupted, tormented, starved, and naked. That's the condition of our culture. That's the condition of our nation. That's the condition of our world. And God comes to a world that finds itself in that condition, and he lovingly asks, where are you? Because if you can answer that question, then you can answer where hope lies. I want you to take a moment and answer the question number six on your outline. And we're going to take a moment and let you actually write your answer down. And the question is this, be honest with yourself and with God and with others. What agreement have I made in my heart that speaks arrogantly against God? Maybe in your heart you said it's futile to serve God. Maybe in your heart you said, I just don't trust God. Maybe in your heart you just said, I think I can do a better job of handling me than submitting my life and my heart to God. And maybe you've just made agreements in there that, hey, I I know God may not think this way, but I have an opinion that's different. Maybe you've been applauding that which God hates. So the question is, be honest 
The road to freedom is first being honest with yourself and with God and then with others so you can be free, so you can be healed. What agreement have I made in my heart that speaks arrogantly against God? Malachi chapter 3, this is what happens. God says these things to the people. He says, this is the way you've spoken arrogantly against me. And then there's an action point. There's a response from the people. And we see that in Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So what happens, these people come together and they say, yeah, it's hard for us right now. Yes, we're facing persecution. Yes, there's racism. Yes, there's horrible things going on in our world. And they say, basically, listen, there is a day where God makes all things right. We are the people of God. Let's get back to our identity. Who am I? I'm one who trusts the Lord. And even though I've been afraid, even though I've experienced fears, I'm not a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And they come together and they encourage one another. And it's a beautiful thing because God loves, he actually listens when the people of God come together in groups or as a church like this and we encourage one another. When we build each other up, God listens to that. He loves it. He loves when that happens and they come together. God loves it. Not only does God love it, but he actually writes it down. You might read this passage simply in English and think that the people wrote a scroll, but the truth is God is having, calling a scroll of remembrance to be written in heaven regarding those who respect him, who honor him, who are choosing to encourage one another and to trust him. He's saying, we're going to remember this. God doesn't just listen, he writes it down. That's how invested he is in your heart. You think maybe God doesn't listen to your, your words, but God does. God listens to when you encourage one another. He listens to when you build one another up. He listens when you offer hope. He says, listen, you have a story. You have a testimony. And that testimony is needed. I was afraid, but I chose faith. I was a fearful, but I chose trust. And it led to freedom. Uh, horrible things happened in my life. The worst things happened to me or my family. And you choose faith. Some of you in this room, you might say, Dave, you don't understand in your entitled position up there on the stage what it's like to go through really hard things, and I would push back at that. Because we know what it's like when Heather's uncle was shot and killed by three guys who stepped out of a car after he pulled them over in his police cruiser near the Four Corners area of our country, and they stepped out and riddled his car with 50 bullets, killing him. We know what it's like to watch the cousins not have a dad come home that night. We know. We know what it's like when the governor shows up at that funeral and uses it as a, as a platform to push his political agenda. Oh, there's injustice. We've experienced it firsthand. We understand. But God's people come together and they say our hope is not even in this life. Our hope is in a God who gives us freedom in the afterlife who gives us eternity with him forever. And our stay on this world is just a short time. I talked with one of our members here who just got in an accident not almost a mile from here this week in which there was a fatality on Laguna Boulevard. 
bunch of cars involved. Her car was involved in that. God spared her life. Sometimes bad things happen, and yet she says, I realize God's got a testimony for me to tell that when I was afraid, when I was almost injured, that God met me right there. And if he didn't, if it was her time to go, then she would be in the presence of the Lord. God just doesn't listen. He actually writes it down. Keeps a great record. He loves when his people come together to encourage one another. Malachi 3, verse 17, he says this, On that day when I act, let me time out right there. On that, God's saying, listen, there is a day coming when I will act, when all wrongs will be made right and all injustices will be accounted for. There is a day when I will act, and that is a fearsome day. So God's saying, listen, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, he's speaking of his people, they will be my treasured possession I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of the, to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. God is saying to the people, listen, right now you think this is not going to happen. There will not be a day of justice. But he's saying the day is coming. And in that day, your response is that you will be rescued because of Jesus. You will be rescued from God's righteous wrath against sin. And you will be rescued from that because all his wrath was poured out on Jesus. And on that day, you're going to frolic. Like, your response is going to be, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I trusted God. I'm so glad that I chose to keep serving him, even when I faced the temptation that said it's futile to serve God. I'm so glad that when I felt like I wasn't gaining, in fact, I felt like I was losing everything. You're saying, I'm so glad that every costly thing I lose is evidence that I've been following you, God, that, that it's not about me. It's about you and your glory. You're going to frolic like a well-fed calf. I don't know about you, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've seen these little baby cows run around out in the fields south of Bilby Boulevard here in Elk Grove, and they're happy, and they run. And sometimes they run when they touch the electric fence, but that's not the time I'm talking about. <laughs> they run because they're happy, and they're probably, compared to the other cows, they're just like, hey, I'm all about eating, I'm all about food, but the, you know, they run around. And maybe you haven't seen that, but maybe you've seen baby goats in pajamas. And that's what you and I are going to frolic around like. It's going to be the cutest thing ever. We're just going to be delighted. We're going to be in glory. God, you're right. You've been right all along. It's so clear to me now, even though it was clouded then. God's fact is greater than your feeling. God's saying, let me give you the fact. The day is coming. That's the fact. So God's fact is greater than your or my temporary feeling. And then we got to personalize it, right? I am his treasure, I'm his treasure. In fact, the word he used there, he says, they will be my treasured possession. In other uh, texts, it would say, they will be like a jewel to me. Like, like it's your prized gems, your diamonds. It's, this is, you will be to God like his treasured possession. And God will judge the wicked, and we will see that by serving him, that serving him is right, and that you gain eternal life by trusting him. In the midst of suffering, 
assaulted by doubt and discouragement, God's people sure didn't feel like treasure. They mistrusted God. God, have you forgotten us? Have you looked at our world? Have you seen what's going on? Felt horrible. They, they didn't feel like treasure. They felt like an afterthought. And so they said, well, if you're not going to do as we please, and we're going to do as we please. And God says, no, 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 on that day, you will realize you are my treasure, a son or daughter of the Most High God, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. Our feelings don't change the fact. And you need to let God's fact be greater than your feelings. That there is a day when justice happens. When all wrongs are made right. Where accountability is final. God still has eternity to right all wrongs and reward all good. Listen, he can do it on his schedule instead of you and I demanding God do it on our schedule. God will rise up nations. He'll cause nations to fall. What if ours is falling right now? Are you still part of the kingdom of God? What if God says America's going to fall? Are you going to be part of the kingdom of God? Or are you going to cling to my comfort and my status and my identity and my experience? We trust him, and it's a choice. As God's people, we need to be reminded that that day is coming. It's interesting because God uses the illustration of fire. In chapter 2, he says this. He says, listen, he goes, I'm going to bring a fire, but my fire is for the people of God, and it's going to be a refining fire. It's a purifying fire. It's a healing fire. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm going to bring the refiner's fire to you. You've been asking me these questions. I'm going to bring them back to you, and it's like a refiner's fire. That's a good fire. But now he uses the illustration of another fire. He promises a burning fire against the wicked. He says the wicked will have no hope of shooting up again to life. In other words, there's not going to be a stump left. There's not going to be a root. There's not going to be a branch left. It will be all consumed. It will be final. They have no hope of ever shooting back up to life because judgment of eternity is final. And that's why, listen, your testimony, your words, your story of being afraid and choosing to trust God, your story of saying there is hope beyond this life. Yes, there's evil in this life. It's because Satan controls and has authority over the world, but it's temporary. And there is a kingdom coming that will never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. There is hope in that. And your story needs to be told. Your testimony needs to be heard. Because there's a whole nation, a whole world that says we find ourselves corrupted, tormented, starved, naked. And we need to reach for hope. And, they say, and right now they're just reaching for themselves and that's not good enough and it leads to things that are horrible. But what if we were the ones who gave the hope? What if your story was able to be heard? And listen, there are people who laugh at God. There are people who shove God out. There are people in your workplace who say, don't talk about it. You could lose your job. There are people in all over, and I'm telling you, talk about it. Tell the story. Our country's dying because of that kind of oppression. Tell your story. What if somebody heard your story about when you were afraid or when you were persecuted or when you had horrible things happen to you, when life was relentless, you still said, but God is good. And they said, if God has pulled you out of there, maybe he could pull me out. Listen, some of you in here, you've gone through Celebrate Recovery and you've completed your step study and you've written out your testimony, but you have not shared your testimony. Listen to me clearly, share your testimony. Man up, 
stop hiding behind wanting to be you know, a false front of security. There's somebody listening who says, listen, if God could reach you in that kind of mess, then just maybe he could reach to me in my shame and my guilt and my mess. Tell the story. Who tells you not to tell the story? Where do you think that message come from? Is it the Lord? Well, if it's not the Lord, it's got to be somebody else. Who do you think that is? Satan. And you and I make agreements about that in our heart, and we become quiet. And God is saying, listen, the people of God in your talk, you have, been, you have spoken arrogantly against me. Instead of telling your testimony, you've been speaking arrogantly against me. And so the people came together, and they encouraged one another. They said, no, we've got to tell our story. We've got to. Come on, let's not give up. Let's tell our story. Let's be the people of God. And they were encouraged that day. God heard. He listened. He wrote it down. He says, you're my treasure. Tell my story. On your outline, there's a question. I want you to take a moment to answer that. What could my new testimony be if I now choose to trust God? My old testimony is I've made agreements in my heart. I've been afraid. I've been withholding. I've been mistrusting God. I've been silent. But what could my new story be? You write it down. Some of you got to write that down. You got to say, I was addicted to this. But I started, I'm going to choose to start trusting God and let's see how he walks me through recovery. Others of you are going to say, I hid behind shame and guilt for years. I wouldn't be honest with God or myself or with others. And I finally told somebody and, and, and God has brought me out of that captivity. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. What would your new story be? could it be? Write it down. And you can answer number nine. How could my story of trusting God encourage someone else to do the same? How could that happen? If I let my story out, couldn't it help somebody else who is just like me? find hope the very end of the book is Malachi 4 verse 5 and 6 God says this see I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction and as soon as God said that as soon as the prophet Malachi finished speaking these words from God to the people, listen to me, God was silent for 400 years. Didn't send a prophet, didn't say a thing to the people of Israel for 400 years. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, but before that day of judgment comes, I'm going to send Elijah. And 400, bless you, 400 years later, God sends John the Baptist as the Elijah to pave the road, to prepare the hearts of the people to receive God the Father and to receive his son, Jesus Christ, and to receive God's Holy Spirit on the inside that would make them new. And he sent them, paved the road through John the Baptist. And this is what happens. Really, God the Father is turning the hearts of the parent to the children again. And through Jesus now, we have the chance for the hearts of the children, you and me, to turn back to the Father. God is a good 
good father, and that's how he ends this. And today God is saying, my intent to pursue you is that your heart, when he asks, where are you, is that your heart would turn back to the father. His heart is already toward you through Jesus. It's already for you through Jesus. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, not looking around at anybody else, just considering your life for a minute, I want to just ask, where are you? If God was walking through this crowd today and walking down your row and he put his hand on your head, his hand on your shoulder, and he just simply whispered you, where are you? Some of you in this room would realize you've never trusted God. You've never given him your life. You've never said, God, I'm going to give you my heart. I trust in what you did on the cross could save me of my sins. Some of you in this room, you're a believer. You've already made that decision. You've already said, God, I trust you, but life circumstances have made you withdraw your trust. And maybe today God is just wanting to give you hope again for his story through your life. Will you believe him? If today you would say, I've, I've never prayed to receive Christ. I've never asked him into my life. I've never received the forgiveness that God offers for my sins. Then today you can do that. It's a free gift. It's simply through prayer. And if today you'd like to receive the forgiveness of your sins, you pray a prayer like this right after me, just in your seat. You say it quietly in your heart or just silently out loud a little bit, and, and God will hear you. He will listen. He will write it down. Your name will be forever written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But you pray a prayer like this just right where you're seated. Jesus, today, I give you me. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of all my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you were God. I ask you to make me a new creation because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.